Okay, we're going to switch gears a little bit here, and we're going to continue in our sermon series called The Defiant Incarnation. And so a big part of all of our lives is death. There's going to be some seriousness to this message today. Death is a part of life. Many of us have lost loved ones. All of us, unless Jesus comes back before that day, will die. But there's something different. Death is different for those who believe in Jesus. We have great hope, like Paul said, that death has no sting. And the Apostle Paul said, I'm torn because I want to stay here and serve the church and love people and proclaim the name of Jesus. But at the same time, I'm okay with death because I get to see Jesus face to face. He knew the glories beyond the grave. Every day, 155,000 people die. Every year, 56 million people die. Death is a reality. And even more, we realized this this past week with this tragedy in um, Connecticut. We realized death is horrible. I'm sure many, many parents and those who weren't parents wept over this evil and this tragedy and what I might even label demonic act of the taking of those children's lives and those adults. But the good news is that Jesus is the life giver. And so what I want you to hear today through this message is that Jesus came to overcome death. Jesus came to give eternal life to all who believe in him. Not only do we have hope in eternal life, but we have hope now in that the Holy Spirit comes into us, resides with us into our heart, and gives us true life now by making us spiritually alive in Jesus Christ. I want you to leave today not fearing death, but trusting and worshiping and living in the truth of the life giver, Jesus. He's going to call himself today the bread of life. Now, we all have to eat food for energy, right? Every day we have to eat. It gives us energy for a time, but it has its limitations. Jesus calls himself the bread of life today because he says, eat of me, believe in me, and you will have eternal life. Now, we never want to make the mistake of being a culture that just doesn't want to talk about death or doesn't want to think about death or just that's a taboo subject. A man is wise and a woman is wise when they realize that their days are numbered. And you can find joy in that because there's nothing to fear. We were made to live eternally. And when man sinned against God and rebelled against God, sin came in. And death is a consequence of sin. And what Jesus has done is he has come to give us life, give us life abundantly, and give us eternal life. That's one of the great aspects and facets of the gospel is that we get eternal life. Now, life in itself is not the reward, but life with Jesus is the reward. If life was the reward, there wouldn't be so many people who wanted to kill themselves or so many suicides around the holidays. Because it's not about just living. It's about living in relationship with God Almighty. It's about living with the one who we were meant to live with 
and we were created to worship, to be in perfect relationship with him, and that's God. So today, be encouraged that Jesus is the life giver. If you have put your faith in Jesus, you will have eternal life. And the reason that is so good is because you will be with God, the Prince of Peace, the ultimate joy forever. Is that awesome? All right, let's turn to John 6. We're going to read and learn from John 6, verse 41 through 51. It says, so the Jews grumbled about him because I said, he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. So nothing's new. The religious leaders, God's covenant people are grumbling about what Jesus said. You would think that the Son of God would come to earth and everyone would be excited every time he said something. Everyone would be blown away. Everyone would be humbled. Everyone would be encouraged. But every time Jesus says something, people start grumbling and complaining. What is he talking about? I don't understand that. Why did he say that? So the crowd is kind of going like, what did he say? And it's just going through the crowd. What the heck did he say? He said, I came down from heaven. And this is why we named this sermon series The Defiant Incarnation. Because Jesus is claiming that he is God. This is a foundational doctrine in the Christian faith. If you take out this doctrine, nothing stands. Jesus claimed to be God. That's why they crucified him. They didn't crucify him because he was a nice guy teaching things to people. Or he was a good spiritual leader. They crucified him because he said, I am I am God. I am divine. He is stating that he is the second person of the Trinity who came down from heaven to earth. It was miraculous what God did with Mary. This is why we celebrate Christmas, right? God miraculously made Mary pregnant with his own son, the son of God, who was divine, who was the second person of the Trinity and is the second person of Trinity. And that baby was born into human history. That's the incarnation. God became man. Jesus was fully God, fully man, the hypostatic union. And what are they mad about? What are they grumbling about? The fact that Jesus said he came down from heaven. I don't want us to get this wrong. They didn't like that truth claim. Now, let me tell you in your everyday life, if you're someone who follows Jesus, loves Jesus, and um, is a Christian, people are fine when you say, I'm a Christian. They're fine with you saying, We should forgive. They're fine with you saying, turn the other cheek. They're fine with saying, do unto others as they would do to you. But the line gets drawn when you start claiming the divinity of Jesus. They're saying, hold on. Because if Jesus was divine, that means that he is the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father. That means that he is the authority. As he said in the scriptures, that means that he is the judge. That truth claim changes everything. And people get frustrated about that. I need you guys to understand this. Jesus was God. That's why we come to worship him. That's why they worshiped him in that time. That's why he said, I came down from heaven. Moving on to verse 42. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I came down from heaven? Once again, you see what they're grumbling about? They're grumbling about his heritage. They're saying, we know this man's parents. We know Mary and we know Joseph. He's claiming to be divine and come down from heaven. They're leaning on their own personal knowledge. Now, there could have been rumors that Jesus was divine, that he was born of a virgin. 
but it's very plausible that they hadn't heard those rumors. But they are not believing what Jesus said. They are not receiving his true claim. Now, they've already called him a prophet, right? They know he's powerful. They know he's done miraculous things. But it stops when they say he's God. Okay, you can be a prophet. You can be a good spiritual teacher. You can be a good person. But come on, Jesus. You're saying you come down from heaven. You're saying you're God. How can you say that? We know your father and mother. This is a very important thing, especially around Christmas. And why I pointed at a Christmas tree, I have no idea. Because this is miraculous. And this is what we have to understand. Sometimes we want to get into, be those Christians that are, we're perfectly logical. Everything's reasonable. Everything scientific. Everything we believe is only the empirical evidence. You believe in a God who was born into human history as a baby. You believe that God created this earth out of nothing. You believe in a God who's coming back again. If God created the law of physics, the law of nature, the laws of science, then he can intervene into human history and do something miraculous. This was miraculous what happened. And you can't go, I love how scientists try to say, okay, let's look at the evidence. Could a woman have a baby without a man? Jesus went above the law of physics. That's why it's a miracle. Even creation. God made something out of nothing. That's miraculously miraculous. Too many times we allowed our personal knowledge to trump faith in God. Like these guys did. Said, hold on, we know Jesus' heritage. We know he had a father and mother. We know Joseph and Mary. Some of us might say, hold on, a virgin can't have a baby. Hold on, God can't become man. God can't become flesh. Please don't allow what you claim to be a personal knowledge to trump what Jesus has claimed about himself. Jesus said he was God. He was God. He is God. That's the beauty of the cross. That's the beauty of the gospel, that God himself became man to die for our sins and rose again, defeating death. That's the beauty of the gospel. Moving on, verse 43 and 44. Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him on, lo- on the last day. I want to say one more thing on the last subject before I go on. Science is not a bad thing. Okay? Science is great, but science is just the study of what God has done. <laughs> That's what we're breaking down what God has created. I love science. It's used for so many good things in our culture and our society. It's used even for medical reasons to help us heal people and cure people. Science is awesome. But when science tries to come in with a secular and atheistic mind and say there is not a God, there is not a designer, there is not miracles, they're coming against the authority of Jesus. And I'm going to go with Jesus every time. I'm sorry, guys. I'm not going to go with a human over the God-man Jesus. And so I want us to know, some churches totally say, forget science, they're evil. Science is awesome. I love science. It's doing great things. But there's a line. Science can be very destructive when it kind of destroy the true claims of Jesus and come against the authority of God. I believe they both can coexist in a beautiful way. But I want to say that before we move on. So Jesus goes on to say in verse 43 and 44, he is rebuking. Jesus is always rebuking people. He says, do not grumble. Grumbling's not the way to see who I am. Complaining's not the way to find your Savior. 
He says, there are those who will be taught by God, and they don't come to me unless the Father draws them. See, so many of us have been contaminated by secular philosophy. We think that our choices dictate everything. Now, I'm a person who believes in free will. I don't believe in some fatalistic philosophy where our choices don't affect our life. They do. But God has the primacy in salvation. This is what Jesus is saying here. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to God. No one comes to Jesus unless God the Father draws them to him. He's saying that God has the primacy in salvation. He's the initiator of salvation. See, we don't like that because we like to be independent. We like to come to things on our own terms. But what Jesus is saying here is what he's saying through the whole book of John. He's saying, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Those are his very words. See, this was a challenge for me because I came from a theological background where you had to get, you had to come to Jesus 20 times a week. You know, so you lose your salvation. Oh, I did something wrong. I lost my salvation. I got to get back right with God. Oh, I sinned again. Oh, I shouldn't have looked at that. I got to get right with God. Every week was an altar call. If you want to rededicate your life to Jesus, come up again. And you know, the same guys rededicating themselves 25 times a month. And they give them the booklet every time. That's because people believe that their salvation starts and ends with their initiation. Not with the initiation of God who has pursued you, who has loved you, who has shown you your, his grace even though you are sinners and who has drawn you to him. Yes, you responded in faith. Yes, you have free will. Yes, you believe and chose Jesus. But he is the one who's given credit for your salvation. He's the one who has primacy. Has the prime, um, what word am I looking for? Yeah, the prime. What? No, now I'm going to get lost. But he's the prime mover in salvation. He's the prime initiator in salvation. And please understand that. Please know that. That's why when everyone gets to heaven, they're not going to rejoice because you guys made the right choice. Right? Oh, thank goodness I made the right choice. I knew Jesus was the one and only God. They're going to rejoice. We're going to rejoice. Because God had mercy on us. Because it was not by works, but it was by grace. This is the big theological word we just talked about. It's called regeneration. It's the secret act of God, which he draws you to himself and makes you spiritually alive in Christ. Moving on. Verse 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. Actually, let's read 45. It is written in the prophets. And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes from me. One of the beautiful things about the, uh, being a pastor is the truth that the Holy Spirit is working in the hearts of all believers. That's called regeneration. When someone becomes a Christian, it says the Holy Spirit, who is fully God, the third person of the Trinity, comes into your life. And he teaches you, convicts you, encourages you, and comforts you. Now, I didn't fully understand that when I first started pastoring. So what you try to do is you try to be the Holy Spirit in people's lives, right? You want them to be convicted about what you're convicted about. You want them to dress like you dress. You want them to watch the same movies you want. So everyone's trying to be the Holy Spirit in everyone's life, right? Then you realize, hold on. Number one, I'm imperfect and I don't see things like God sees things. Number two, I can't be with someone 24-7. You guys would get sick of me very quickly. 
Lucky my wife lets me stay around the house. 24-7, me watching what you do. What are you doing? What are you doing? Or me teaching you. The beautiful thing about this is, as a pastor, I can trust God that the Holy Spirit is working in your life. That the Holy Spirit is teaching you, convicting you, encouraging you, and what is called sanctifying you. That's a beautiful thing. He will complete the work that he started in you. I trust that. I trust God's grace. Know why I trust it? Because the Bible teaches it. And because he's doing it to me every day too. He's teaching me. He's moving in me. And I'm growing little by little. Believe me, it's taken a lot longer than I thought. And I will not be perfect until I see Jesus after I pass from this life to the next. And so what Jesus is saying here, there are those who are drawn to, the, to me by the Father. And the Holy Spirit will teach them. And they will not only will he teach them, but they will respond by receiving it and learning and being changed. He's talking about the new covenant, the Holy Spirit working in people's heart, hearts. In verse 46, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. People love this verse and have a lot of questions and say, has anyone seen God? So let me narrow it down to what I'm talking about here. In a very real way, anyone who saw Jesus in his time saw the Father. They saw God because he was God. But what we're talking about here is Jesus talking about his intimate relationship, his unique relationship between the Father and the Son who lived in perfect, uninterrupted communion with each other. He's saying to these guys, and what he has said in the past chapters, you guys don't even know God. He said to religious leaders, you don't even know me. You don't even know God. Because if you knew God, you would hear my words. If you knew God, you would see the Father in me. If you knew God, you would understand the Scriptures are pointing to me. Jesus is talking about his unique relationship with the Father, that he sees him, he knows him, he communes with him. Now we know that Moses, he asked God, show me your face. And he couldn't even show him his face, he showed him his back. Because none of us could stand before the holy God. See him face to face on this side of heaven. And even make it through. That's too powerful. That's too wonderful. That's too awesome. Jesus is saying he has been in that glory. He has been in that holiness. He is one with the Father. He is claiming his authority, his divinity, and staying in the same vein that he has come down from heaven. And moving on. 47 and 48. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, and I am the bread of life. I just want to get onto that theme of eternal life. Does everyone realize you're getting older? It's tough. I'm sorry. I thought I'd be the man. I was like, I'm going to grow old. I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to get the grades. My waistline's going to get a little bit. I'm just going to roll with it. Now I'm looking in the mirror like, what's going on, man? What's this wrinkle that's starting over here? I, I need to not make that face anymore. You start to realize that this life's not eternal. You start to realize that it's passing away, and you say to yourself, there's got to be more than this. Now, there's a fine line to wanting to believe something because it makes you feel better and want to believe something because of reality. The reason I believe in eternal life is not because I hope there's an eternal life. It's because Jesus said there is eternal life. You know, sometimes people like to make Christians, these people want to believe in fairy tales and gumdrops. The reason I believe in eternal life is because Jesus said anyone who believes in him has eternal life, and that's something I hope for. You can hope in that. You know, some of us maybe think we have 30 years left, and we don't have 30 years left. Some of us might have 50 years left. 
Some of us might have a few years left. And I don't say that to scare you. I say that so you're encouraged that you're in good hands when you're in the hands of God the Father because this life will go on in eternity in perfect communion with God. And for those of your lost loved ones who you have lost, how beautiful it is that there is eternal life and that you will get to see them again. The beauty of the gospel. I don't have to fear. I mean, we all know there's a certain amount of fear of the unexpected, and we're going to mourn when we lose lost loved ones. I'm not asking you to walk around here like robots, but I want to plant this seed of hope in you that it's not desperation, that you realize there's hope in eternal life, and you realize that hope is there because of Jesus Christ. And that is a beautiful facet, beautiful facet of the gospel. It's a beautiful aspect of what Jesus has done and given us life. He called himself the bread of life. And he goes on to explain in in verse 49, and we're coming to the last few verses here. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. And so he's showing that everyone knows the Old Testament, knows the people of Israel when they got free from slavery in Egypt, that God provided manna or bread from heaven so they could could live. That was a miraculous act, right? But that even bread had limitations because it was just bread to keep them going, to sustain them, and they eventually died. He's saying this bread that came down from heaven, if you eat of this bread, you will never die. You'll be satisfied. You will never hunger again. You will live eternally. Everyone who believes in Jesus. And in verse 51, in the final verse, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my, fr- is my flesh. Once, a- once again, you guys see that. What is he claiming? That he came down from heaven. He's saying that he is the bread of life. In the same way he's saying, eat of me, he's basically saying, believe in me. Whoever believes in me will have eternal life. And you see God's compassion, God's love, and he said what? He gave his flesh for the whole world. So it's not just limited to his covenant people. So anyone in the whole world who puts their faith in Jesus will have eternal life. Now, getting to the heart of the matter. This is amazing, and I don't want us to miss this. That God became flesh. He lived the perfect life. And he defeated death in the deeds of the flesh by going to the cross and being crucified so that anyone who believes in him will have eternal life. And he rose from the dead so that we would know that our salvation is secure and that we've been forgiven of our sins. Those who have put your faith in Jesus, you should be encouraged by that. You shouldn't have the same fear of death that an unbeliever has because we have hope in death. We have hope. It has no sin. We will see Jesus. We will be with him. It should encourage us to preach the gospel. Because we realize only hope in Jesus, only faith in Jesus, only belief in Jesus, only those who eat the bread of life who is Jesus will have eternal life. That's what Jesus has said. And to anyone who hasn't put your faith in Jesus, please, what Jesus was saying when he's the bread of life, it's almost like an invitation to a banquet, right? What do you say when you have some good food? Please come over, eat some of this food so it doesn't go to waste. Please come over. We got chicken palm, we got chicken ziti. Please come eat of this bread. 
Jesus is saying, no limitation, invitation open to all. Please come and eat of this bread so you can have eternal life. If you're someone who has not put your faith in Jesus, please do that. Receive the free gift of salvation. It's not by works. It's a free gift of God, and that's why he went to the cross. Secondly, don't allow your personal knowledge to conquer your faith. There's a big movement out there where people allowing personal knowledge and so-called scientific claims to defeat their faith. So they no longer believe in the miraculous. They no longer believe God become man, a God could create the earth, a God is coming back again, a God healed people and did miracles in his time. Don't allow that to defeat your faith. Jesus is miraculous. He did the miraculous. And that's why roughly 2 billion people in this world believe in him. He wasn't a hoaxer, you know. He did miracles. He was divine. He was miraculous. And I want to say something on a side note here. A little rabbit trail, and then we'll conclude. Because of this tragedy in Connecticut, I just want us at Restoration Road and me being your pastor, I just want to make sure I give you some, some leadership in this. It is time to mourn with those who mourn. It's not time to push a political agenda forward. It's not time to say we should have did this and this didn't happen. You don't kick the issue while it's down. The Bible teaches us to mourn for those who mourn and to weep with those who weep and pray for those that they might be comforted. Please, and I'm not saying this to condemn anyone. I just felt I need to give you leadership on this so that we could be lights on this world and not those people are pointing the fingers because those people are pointing the fingers are pointing away from Jesus and pointing to works. We don't fully understand it. No one could have prevented it. Evil happens. Demonic things happen. It's time to mourn and pray for those families because I can't even imagine what they're going through. What we need to do, this needs to inspire us and fuel us to speak of the life giver like we talked about today. Allow this to fuel to speak of eternal life and the life giver so people can have hope in Jesus. That's the only hope we have. And allow yourself to mourn with these people and pray for them. Amen?